0: Whoever you are, we welcome you. We're happy to have each and every one of you join us this morning, and we hope that you find a church home here. My name is Lisa Teal. I'm a lay ministry candidate for this congregation, and I'm joined today by Jeff Marsh, worship associate, and music director, Hal Walker, and coincidentally, the Fallow Time Folk Orchestra. <laughs> Chalice this morning as a reminder that we are entering a sacred time together, an hour set aside from the busyness of our week, to be in community, to open ourselves up to the possibility of new ideas, and perhaps even to grow and become inspired to live with our whole selves.
1: In The Art of Being Inefficient, Ben Catt writes about an epiphany he had while out on one of his daily runs. A phrase from deep inside of him jumped into his awareness. It was, if you don't have your heart, you have nothing. He says, breathing deeply, I pulled out my blaring earbuds and placed my hands at my sides. The words hovered in my head, and I knew exactly what they were telling me. If you don't have your heart, you have nothing. Was not a caution about my heart rate. It was a warning about the fallout from how I had been approaching life and work for the past year, the past decade, and perhaps my entire adult life. The previous five years had been a mad dash of intense grad school work and parenting. It was all good and meaningful, but at the end of the rainy morning run, something deep within me had risen up to declare that my pace was not sustainable. Somewhere along the way, my obsession with productivity had eclipsed my passion and sense of purpose. I was obeying the greatest commandment of current startup culture. I was hustling, but I was losing my heart, becoming an emotionally distant dad, husband, and friend, and extinguishing my inner fire for work. To get my heart back, I would have to turn away from efficiency and embrace another way of being and doing. I would have to explore the art of inefficiency. To help with this, we, needed, we need inefficiency experts. There are enough professionals who pressure us to do more and do it faster. And te- instead, we need to pay attention to the people and practices that teach us deeper wisdom. These guides nurture our souls by teaching us how to be present. They help us expand our perspective Create or keep our creative edge and assist us to do our best, most satisfied living and working, fueled by joy and gratitude. On sunny Seattle days, my neighborhood park is often teeming with such guides in the hour after the kids get out of school and before dinner. But when my gaze is set on my screen so I can squeeze in just one more email, I miss the wisdom on display. My children beckon me into the world of presence as they huddle around the banana slug. My neighbor schools me in soulfulness while he strolls down the path with his beagle, stopping to watch the robin nested in the tree branches. Meanwhile, the stranger on the lawn in the distance, leisurely reading a novel, invites me into the inefficient realm of the imagination." Inefficiency experts are actually all around us, but to see them, we need to tune out the noise of the efficiency gurus pushing productivity as the key to success through conferences, online courses, and apps. To see them, we need to slow down and develop habits that nourish and protect the soul from the incessant demands of efficiency. Come, let us worship together.
0: Let us enter into a time of stillness. I invite you to close your eyes or just look downward. And turn your awareness inside to the breath. Pay particular attention to your exhalation. The exhalation brings a sense of space into the body, into which the inhalation can flow. Without that exhalation, there is no inhalation. Spend a few moments just noticing our breath this way. When you're ready, begin to deepen the breath and start to blink the eyes a little bit and return to our surroundings. Join me in a spirit of prayer. Spirit of life, sustain us. Help us to be fully present in our lives, to be awake to each and every breath, with an inner fire burning brightly with compassion, courage, and love. Amen.
1: Count to 12, and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales. And the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Now I'll count up to 12 and you keep quiet and I will go.
0: I've actually been wanting to write this sermon for a very long time, but was cautious because I don't want to come across as a kids these days kind of a rant. (laughs) But what originally got me thinking about the topic was an evening a while back when my teenager and I were about to watch a movie, and I told him, hold on, I forgot the popcorn in the other room. Right around the corner. And I ran into the kitchen, grabbed the popcorn, came back, not 10 seconds later, and he was engrossed in his cell phone. And uh, just in those few seconds, and I thought, you know, I know it's not just him. You know, many of us, kids, adults alike, are just lured into our phones instead of waiting these days. I know what I I do myself, and I have to wait, you know, just, just to occupy myself. And I began wondering, well, what are we missing? Now that we have these amazing little handheld computers in our pockets and purses ready to whisk us away to wherever we want in the blink of an eye, what did we do in the past? Do we even remember? (laughs) Did we actually just sit there? Did we watch our breath? Did we look around at the scenery or perhaps make eye contact with someone? So are we even missing anything? What does downtime, I'll call it, do for us? Well, the research suggests quite a bit. A recent Scientific American article that was called, Why the Brain Needs More Downtime, stated that, ironically, we need downtime in order to be industrious and to generate creative ideas, to replenish the brain's store of attention and motivation. Also, just thinking in terms of the stages of learning and memory, short-term, long-term, and all that, the final stage is called consolidation, and it's basically a rest period that, in a way, cements the learning and refines skills. Plus, countless studies over the years have clearly demonstrated that a good night's sleep before a big exam does way more for test grades than additional studying or cramming. When my son was about 18 months old, he had a vocabulary of about 25 words. And uh, each night when we we would be getting him ready to go to sleep, I would lie down with him and would share this mellow wind-down time together. And he would blurt out seemingly random words, dog, cookie, cracker, bubble. And I realized that these were all things that he was exposed to during the day, things that he had experienced or learned, and this kind of became his processing time. We could go on and on about the brain's need for downtime, from the research showing there's no such thing as multitasking to the strong indications that sleep is critical for clearing out debris contributing to Alzheimer's disease. And I'm sure we all know that we make infinitely better decisions when we sleep on it or just take a pause rather than when there's a lot of clutter and rushed choices. Some research even suggests that downtime helps us form our very identity. In a Huffington Post article entitled, Why You Should Do Nothing When Your Child Says I'm Bored. Psychologist and researcher Vanessa Lapointe says, it is only when we're surrounded by nothing that something comes alive on the inside. When kids are bored, space is created. Within that space, they discover who they are, what makes them tick, by determining what they're going to do with that time. Somewhat of a side note, I have a friend about my age who wanted to make a career change, so she hired a life coach. And to get at what might indicate some inclination a natural inclination for her he asked her to think about what she did when she was nine years old maybe we could all try and think back a little bit what did we do when we were nine and i wonder in the future what those answers might be if they would even be a differentiator Pico Iyer wrote a book called The Art of Stillness, and he has a, a TED talk by the same name if you want a snippet of it. And he says that it is in stillness that we find out where our roots are deepest. But why aren't we getting downtime? I think definitely technology plays a role. The allure of the cell phone, this amazing information source and connection to all, the incessant buzzing in our pockets. There's actually a new term called nomophobia. Anybody ever hear of it? It describes the anxiety that arises in people who are unable to to, uh, check their phone for whatever reason. Nomophobia. (laughs) And there's also a rise of phantom buzzing sensations. We've become so used to our phones reaching out to us that we're over-primed to respond. Technology follows us into the restroom, we text while walking, we exercise to podcasts and videos. There's just no break. But it's not just the technology. As in the excerpt Jeff read earlier, our culture has become obsessed with productivity, saying, I'm so busy, has become almost a badge of honor. I have a friend who uses the phrase, the glorification of busyness. Busy is seen as good, anything else is bad. Imagine if someone you hadn't seen in a while asks you how you are and what you've been up to and your response is a whole lot of nothing (laughs) or just practicing being. Productivity has become equated with our sense of self-worth in a way. When I became curious about this topic, I did a Google search, I can't remember what I put it exactly, something like what we lose when we don't have downtime. And it was quite telling when the first few pages to result referenced how terrible downtime is, what it can cost a business in terms of lost profits, production, labor costs, etc. And I just saw a documentary called Take Your Pills, it's on Netflix, that addresses the overuse of Adderall, a Ritalin class drug, by those in the financial and the IT sectors in particular, who are putting in 16-hour days and trying to be as competitive as possible. Ours is a culture of workaholics obsessed with productivity. Several years ago, a friend of mine landed a job with the French embassy and started off entry level with five weeks of vacation. I thought, oh my God. But a recent study revealed that Americans average just 10 vacation days a year, and the vast majority end the year with unused vacation days. But it's not just our culture. In Japan, there's a term called Kuroshi. Kiroshi is used to describe death by overwork ultimately caused by cardiovascular disease or suicide. With intense demands on the workforce and no legal limits set for companies, many employees are working insane numbers of hours. A death is described a karoshi if, for the month preceding the death, the person worked 160 hours or more of overtime. Think about that. I just did the math a little bit ago. I think there's 730 hours a month, and so about That's about half with the work hours and the overtime. It's a pretty big amount of hours. But I would go so far as to say that downtime is critical for the soul, that we need to carve out some space to invite in a sense of peace, to self-reflect and live more consciously to courageously confront something we may not wish to see but cannot grow without acknowledging, and to create space for spirit. There's a wonderful book, After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. Anyone read that one? Oh, it's really good. Um, Jack Kornfield, he talks about the idea of grace, grace as something that comes to us when we've created space not something that's just doled out to select people. It's something that comes to everyone, and it's your practice, your stillness, Cornfield says, that is like opening the window. The grace that comes is the breeze that can't enter if the window is closed. But perhaps there already is a growing discontent and a yearning to slow down. Maybe we're starting to realize that there's something missing. A Norwegian television producer created what he called originally an experiment. He produced and aired seven hours of a train traveling its entire journey in real time. Seven hours. (laughs) Chugga, chugga, chugga. It became such a hit, 20% of the country's population tuned in to watch it. All seven (laughs) hours. It became such a hit. Um, And then he expanded it with great, success to many other events, such as a cruise ship traveling through open, foggy waters. Countless miles of foggy ocean and hours and hours of people chopping and burning firewood. And this one's really good for our congregation. This is the one that's in the works right now. Hours and hours of someone knitting. (laughs) (laughs) So perhaps this is a sign of a shift that is ripe to take place. I want to close with a little story about a trip I took several years ago. My family and I boarded a cruise ship to Alaska to see the glaciers. And the ship was full of nonstop noise and lights and commotion day and night. Just people everywhere, noise and music and talking and dancing. And at one point in the journey, the captain announced over the speaker that we had slowed down because we were entering a bay to see the glaciers. And everyone slowly began making their way to the steps to get up to the deck to catch a glimpse of these glaciers. With each step we took, I can still remember it to this day, every step we took got quieter than the previous step. That by the time we got onto the deck, there was a stillness that is really difficult to explain. It almost had a taste to it. Each and every one of us was in complete awe of these ancient mammoth structures Such an intense blue I've never seen anywhere else surrounding us on all three sides. Hundreds of strangers stood in a shared stillness. I don't think any of us could speak if we had to. It was really profound experience. And for me, it felt as if this stillness resonated with some part very deep inside of me saying, ah yes, this is my intrinsic need. It felt sort of like a reset button, like I was starting fresh, or a hardwire reset. And I learned a few things from that experience. First, that stillness is a very deep human need. Second, that nature can be a means to get us there and help us reconnect. And third, the memory of such experiences can serve to return us to states of stillness when needed. So let's take a walk in the woods, leave the phone behind and get absorbed in our natural surroundings. Create your own fallow time. Fallow time for the fields is a break from planting crops in order to improve the quality of the soil, replenish nutrients, and yield better fruit. With your own fallow time, create the space for possibilities and see what can enter, what new and healthy crops will sprout for you. Amen. So, during the offertory this morning, I have a little, I think, is a treat for you—a little video I found that uh, helps show nature assisting us in finding that stillness. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather about as that they might gather about us that they may see. It may be their own images. And so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even with a fiercer life because of our quiet. Go forth to love and to serve as best you are able.